crossroads with um, the Eucharist. So thank you for uh, saying that. I appreciate knowing that. But it's absolutely true. Um, it's absolutely true. All right, Harrison, Mariah, Laura, okay. Hi, Govinda. Hiya. Good, good. All right, so you guys are going to give me 10 minutes if I think <laughs> I'm running slow. That's all right. Again, I know. I know where you are. That's all right. Hey, here he is in person. Nice to see you. You go by Miguel, right? You like to be called Miguel? Is that true? Yes. Okay. He's been on Zoom, but the last few, he's joining us in person. <laughs> Nothing like the real thing, right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> The first thing I'm going to do uh, to start tonight before we get into tonight's notes, I just want to go back a little bit, hopefully not to belabor it, but I just want to go back to last week and just point out a, just a couple of things that I didn't really emphasize last week that I think are important uh, to bring to your attention. And maybe when you read the uh, general instruction, you might have, you know, uh, but I just thought, let me bring it to your attention and in a few words or less, and we'll see what happens from there. Uh, but I had that thought driving home. I was like, oh, I didn't mention that. I didn't mention a few things. That are, they're little things, but they're important things, um, it, especially with your um, observation of the literature. And then the other thing that I want to just uh, go over is the uh, assignments. Um, and do you realize that after tonight, we only have one more class? Yeah. Yes, uh, on the syllabus, all right, next week there's no class because thanks the night before Thanksgiving, uh, there's, everybody's going someplace. Then we have December 1st, we have class, then December 8th, we do not have class. It's all mapped out on your syllabus. And then I was, I am really trying to avoid having class finals week because you all have finals to do for this class and for your other classes. And I want, so you're gaining, you know, um, three nights to do your work. And that's important to me that you'll have time to do your work as well. So 
So we're going to really work hard tonight and on December 1st to finish everything uh, that I set out to do. Uh, that's my plan, all right? So um, I think everybody's here. And if they're not, they're going to miss out. <laughs> but um, it looks like everybody's here or on Zoom. But um, let me just see. Anthony, are you with us? I know you can't turn on your camera. I'm here. Are you with us? Yeah. Okay, I'm great. Here. Okay, understood. Uh, okay, so um, even before we get into the notes and the prayer, Shut up. Um, let me just go. Well, let's go to the prayer. We'll go to the prayer because I'm all feel with that, right? We, we have another beautiful feast day. Look at us. You know, I put so much emphasis on the liturgical year and so many of the weeks together we've had beautiful feast days. So we have um, St. Elizabeth of Hungary uh, today, her feast day. And so as we gather together, um, forgetting about everything we left behind, what we're going back to, focusing on being here, focusing on our time together, wherever we might be. Um, we have a lot of rich information to go through tonight to continue our conversation of the sacred liturgy. And so we pray. Oh God, by whose gift St. Elizabeth of Hungary recognized and revered Christ in the poor, grant through her intercession that we may serve with unfailing charity the needy and those afflicted. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. My husband used to work in a parish, St. Elizabeth, Hungary, Admiral Island. So I was thinking of that today. So again, before, before I start with our outline for tonight, some of these post-conciliar documents, I just want to go back to the general instruction. And just a couple of things that I feel are just important to bring to your attention that we didn't talk about last week. And I'm reading from a commentary. Remember I said you always have to go to the source first. All right, then if you want further explanation, you can go to a commentary. This commentary, it's called the Pastoral Commentary on the General Instruction of the Roman Missal by Monsignor Joseph de Bracco. And um, uh, it's, it's a very, there's a lot of commentaries on the uh, Roman Missal, third edition, and the general instruction. This is the most readable. <laughs> Let me put it that way. This is for ordinary folks, and it makes a lot of sense, and it is very pastoral, as it says. But anyway, just, just a couple of points, all right? Um, the right of peace, the sign of peace. We talked a little bit about it last week and how um, I feel that it's misunderstood and um, it's often not uh, done correctly and we've taken it out with the pandemic but people are still waving to everybody. But the point is the, the commentary further explains what the general instruction says 
And he says, mention is made here concerning the manner of the sign of peace, the exact form of which is to be determined by the bishops. And it basically says that it's calling for uniformity um, of the expression, and it's to offer only offer the sign of peace only to those who are nearest. I made the point last week, but I want to reiterate it that it's the person next to you on either side, that's it. And that it is, it has a really rich meaning, that it's more than a high five or a peace, it's not that, it's Christ's peace. Um, and that's right before we're receiving communion, it's almost like a moment of reconciliation, you know, um, for us. So that's, I just wanted to reiterate that uh, with you again. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, let me go to the page, um, about communion. Uh, and this is, you know, remember we're talking the ideal in this class, uh, and the ideal doesn't always happen. <laughs> but basically, um, the commentary on the general instruction would tell us that the, P, the assembly is supposed to be receiving communion only from a host that are consecrated at that mass. Observe that. And I can guarantee 99% of you are not going to see that. Right? Unless there's a concerted effort in a parish that um, at a particular Sunday mass, they're not going to those in reserve in the tabernacle. I used to work for a priest who's now a bishop that was adamant with the liturgy committee that we've got to make this work in our parish and figure it out. And the, for the time he was with us, we did. That everybody who attended mass, no matter what mass it was, received uh, hosts from those consecrated at that. So that, Doctor, I just wanted to reiterate Doctor, that. Can so, I ask, Dr. Eschenau, can I ask a question? Um, of course. Uh, there are... Uh, several members of, of the parish that I'm in right now that have gluten allergies. And yes. I keep uh, actually in a PIX uh, in the tabernacle several of those hosts. Um, There's only low gluten. There's no such thing right. as gluten-free hosts. No, I know. But, but yeah. I, can't give them, I can't give them gluten-laden hosts. And, and these people are adamant about that fact. And that's so, fine. okay, I just wanted to make sure. That, that's absolutely fine. Or their other option in non-pandemic times is just to receive the wine. Okay. Yeah, because the body and blood is contained in both the host and the wine. That's important. Okay. Okay, but we're in pandemic times, so the cup isn't being distributed. To fall back the question before about the side of peace, mm -hmm. is there any standard they want us to do it correctly in? We we we're supposed to look the person next to us nearest to you. But you know, do we say something? Do we go like this? It's it's a handshake or a kiss. It depends what your relationship with the person next to you is. But peace be with you. That's it. That's it. Okay. That's it. That's it. Dr. Eisenhower. Yeah. Sorry, real quick, what page was that, um, the one in, where you um, consecrated only at Mass? Yeah, in the commentary? 
Doctor, can you just yes. can you just give me the name of that book again? Uh, the one that you. Yeah, it's you, on. It's on the bibliography. The author is DeGracco, D-E-G-R-O-C-C-O, Joseph. A pastoral commentary on the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah, but I'm positive it's on your bibliography. All right. Um, the other thing is um, the communion chant or the communion hymn is supposed to, this is on page, if you have the commentary or if you just want to make a note, page 72, is to begin while the priest is receiving the sacrament. You know, I, I've, I've seen so many different things, but as the priest is receiving the sacrament, the hymn is supposed to start. Because it's one action. The priest's receiving of Holy Communion isn't separate from our receiving. And that's why that instruction is there. If there's music, obviously, um, that it begins during the priest uh, uh, as he's receiving. And the commentary says its beginning is not to be delayed until the priest and ministers go out to the assembly. See? Okay, so that it's the priest receiving extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, and then the music begins when the assembly is coming up. I mean, this is right from the general instruction, and I've seen it, and again, I just want you to all know the right way, okay? Um, for that to happen, what do they then suggest for the music um, people? Ministers, um, yeah, to receive. Right. Well, it depends on the parish. Sometimes, for example, my husband is a church organist. He's up in the choir loft. Sometimes the deacon or an extraordinary minister brings it up to him. Or sometimes, um, let's say if choir is there and it's prolonged, after mass is over, he goes down and the deacon will give him communion. So it's just kind of working it out logistically. Yeah, with them. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, you know, I think, I guess the organist, it's more difficult, but, you know, if there is a, there's technically supposed to be congregational singing during the reception of communion. So the choir, if there's a choir, could go down and receive or from wherever they are. And then if perhaps there's something that they're singing after, you know, in that Thanksgiving period. But it has to be worked out logistically. But sometimes my husband receives communion when mass is over. He goes down to the sacristy and the deacon or priest who's there gives him communion. But or it's just something they worked out. Yeah, or different um, through the years that different um, directors of music have requested different things. Yeah. Because the thing is, you know, I mean, it's a type, but you know, you don't want to be distracted while you're receiving and just like be playing the organ and like, okay, amen. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's, you know, so different parishes do different things, but it's just a logistical thing. But that's what the, the directory says. The other thing, if you wanted, which we mentioned, I don't have to belabor that whole idea of the prayer after communion and where the announcements go. Uh, that's on page 75 in this commentary, that it reiterates it, that the announcements come after 
for the prayer after communion, because that prayer after communion concludes the communion rite that started with the Our Father. But far too many, with all due respect, uh, pre-celebrants think of it as the concluding prayer to Mass, and it's not. It's the prayer that concludes the concluding rite. So that's, it may sound like a little thing, but it's not, it's important. And then the, because the announcements are not part of the communion rite. That's the point. This is important um, regarding the reception of communion. And again, if you want to jot it down uh, from the commentary, it's on page 119 and following. It gives some specifics for the reception of Holy Communion by the assembly. Um, uh, let's see. I don't, again, I don't want to belabor it, but there's one thing is um, regarding gesture. And again, in your observation, this is something to note. You're going to see different things. The general instruction does not call for a profound bow by when we're receiving communion. In other words, that's a profound bow from the waist. It calls for bowing of the head. Not too many people know that. I, I, and it's right in the general instruction and then it's reiterated in the commentary. I once had a conversation here with a visiting priest and I just happened, we came up in conversation. He said, oh no, I think you're wrong. And, you know, I was like, you know, I went right and checked my book, but I wasn't wrong. You know, I'm like, no, check it out. It's in the general instruction. So, you know, we do again. And the purpose of gestures is about unity, you know. And again, you know, poor catechesis leads to all different things. But yes. Prior to the pandemic, I've been to the parishes and they all do it different. As far as is, it, is this set in the germ? Yes. When the ex-running minister of the Holy Communion step up in the sanctuary, do they have to wait for the priest to consume? The extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion? Right. When they, when yeah. They're lay people. I've seen them go, you know, I've seen some priests make them wait till the priest receives. And the other one's like, come on up. So does it mention in there one that's supposed if, to go? Um, I'm... Um, I can't be certain of exactly where it is, but it's in the guidelines in the liturgical section of our Archdiocesan website. Because in some parishes that I used to work in, they had extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion go up during the Lamb of God, and that's not appropriate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that they're, it's after that. Yeah. And they'd be up there then for the sign of peace and all that. That's not appropriate. So it isn't all liturgical guidelines for our diocese. That's, that I know, because that is an issue. And so again, you're gonna see different things. So I would say, look it up in here. I can't put my hand on it, but that's a good question. Maybe we'll look during the break, all right? So does that make sense about the um, gesture during communion? It used to be really easy when I used to prepare children for First Holy Communion. I just used to say, so they'd remember, bow your head when you're saying amen. The body of Christ, amen, or on the tongue, whatever. It does give you that um, option on the tongue or in the hand. On the tongue is normative. The hand, receiving in the hand is an indult, right? But receiving in the hand goes back to ancient times. So it's a matter of preference for the recipient. And also the, uh, the, the posture.
posture in the United States is standing for Holy Communion. But it also says if somebody chooses to kneel, nobody should reprimand them. Just let them, let them. But nobody should force a person to kneel. That should be an option. But the posture in the United States is standing. Okay? And all that's in here. I'm just trying to reiterate. Then the most important thing I wanted to actually read to you from here, and I brought it up last week, but I want you to hear it from somebody other than me, right? About people who are not receiving and going up for a blessing, right? This is what Monsignor DeGraffo says, and I think it's well said. Finally, it may be appropriate to say a word here about the practice of people who are not going to receive Holy Communion coming forward to receive a blessing. There is no foundation for the practice in the dioceses of the United States, and priests should not encourage this practice. The communion procession is not a time when everybody should come forward to get something. The procession, this is what I was alluding to last week, the procession has the specific meaning of giving action within the fourfold Eucharistic actions of taking, blessing, breaking, giving. It is the faithful coming forward to now partake of the gifts that they themselves have offered that have been transformed, and it is the outward sign that completes the inward participation in the sacrifice. It is a misguided sense of hospitality to try to turn this moment into something else so that all feel included. In addition, it should be kept in mind that everyone will receive a blessing a few moments after communion in the final blessing at Mass. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But we see it, as we said last week. He doesn't want the next 20 minutes of Holy Communion blessing people with the wrong school. Absolutely not. I'm sorry, 120 to 121 in the commentary. That's important. Okay, one issue that comes up, and particularly for these guys that are kind of head of them about becoming, you know, deacons, you know, when somebody comes up for communion and they have not been attending Mass, you haven't seen them in months and everything else, they have not met, you know, as far as the requirements are concerned, they haven't been going to Mass. What about giving them communion? You have to. You cannot refuse. That's what I've been told. There's no basis for not doing that. You cannot. If anybody comes up, you cannot refuse them. Would you tell them afterwards that... It would depend on your relationship with the person, if you know the person, or if the pastor knows the person, you could bring it to the attention. I had an exact thing happen in a parish that I worked in. We had a man who was Presbyterian, married to a Catholic, and came to Mass with her, and he received communion every Sunday. And the pastor got to know him, and once he just brought him in and talked to him. But the Presbyterian guy didn't understand it, because it would be the opposite. All right? But 
our understanding of receiving communion is different. So, you know, the guy said, well, how do I become Catholic? And God love him, he became Catholic. And he was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. And he did, was uh, received to full communion. But you can't, re uh, you can't um, refuse anybody if they come up. Okay, because that's come up. There was a question that came up uh, where a pastor did not want to give someone communion because they were very much of a pro-choice. You know, uh, oh God, no! I mean, how how many people yeah, do we need yeah. to alienate? I mean, that's just yeah. wrong. Can't do it. Even Pope Francis and the president, right? Sure, Pope, Pope Francis and Biden, President Biden. Yeah, that, yeah. So we can't. So many that we don't know what people do or don't do. Exactly. It's not for us to say. You're absolutely right. And the way it was explained to me, it is Jesus. He can choose to come in and get out as he wills. If he sees, if he thinks that I'm not worthy, he might as well leave. It is Jesus. It's, you know, the disposition that we're in is going to make a difference in the, in the, the, the idea of being open to the graces. Not that grace is something we earn, but what will happen with those graces in us will make a difference. But there are so many things. And another way to look at it is this is a sacrament that can transform us. And I think we need to pray that people's hearts will be transformed. I, I really do. Paul. Oh. But the, not to go off the top. No, no, I know. The, the difficult thing not with respect to saying, oh, I never see this person in church. We can't judge people. You don't know. They can go to different churches. Exactly. But, but we cannot judge. But I, I think the issue becomes that that we know that if we we decide to receive communion unworthily, subject to mortal sin, we're bringing condemnation upon ourselves. It's it's sacrilegious. Exactly. So therefore, the, to me, it's not as simple as everything. It, 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 the priest or the bishop has to make a determination. If if I do know for a fact. Am I participating in allowing this unworthy reception of communion, or do I just let it go? I think it's really complicated. It is. You're right. Very right, Paul. It is more. It's not black and white. You know, it's really not. And we really have to. Um, you know, my answer to everything is like Padre Pio says: "It's this pray, if that pray." You, you know what I mean? It's like prayer for the whole church, for people that their hearts are transformed, you know, and the Eucharist can do that. It can. And so it's true. We never know. I'm sure, because I go to different churches, and people must see me like once a month in one church and say, well, where's she been, you know? Because <laughs> I, I go to different, two different, three different churches on a Sunday, you know? And so who knows what people are saying about me. <laughs> There's a funny story. I, my yeah. son and his girlfriend came to mass with me on Sunday. And when we went up to receive, I was ready to say to them, you guys haven't been going to church, you can't go receive. I didn't. We go out to breakfast after, afterwards. Mm -hmm. Turns out they've been going to church at her parish. They, they and I was like, oh, I'm glad I didn't stay. <laughs> yeah, I never say a word to my, I have three grown children. I never say a word. They're grown ups. If they ask me, I'll tell them. Mm. But I never say a word. That's one thing I vowed working for the church that I, I would be really patient with my children. And if they ask me, I'm really happy to tell them, you know, but and and be a witness. Being a witness is the biggest thing. 
we can do. But we need to pray for people, that people will understand what it means to be in the right disposition, and that the, the graces will be so rich, um, receiving Holy Communion worthily. And that's a lifelong thing. I mean, you think about a few years ago, your, your life, and then you think about where you are now, and think about Holy Communion at different times of your life and the meaning, you know, that we're, we're, we're pilgrims on the journey and, and conversion happens over and over and over again. And to, to use that time of Holy Communion um, and after, particularly the Thanksgiving after Communion, to really pray and ask the Lord to penetrate your, your mind, your heart, your soul, your body, everything, you know, it's just such a powerful thing. And it's a lifelong process. And the best we can do is where we have opportunities in parishes, schools, whatever the case may be, is to talk about it, you know, and not, not make a judgment, not condemn or whatever, but just to say it. You know, it's like that. I told you the story of the ladies who said, I never went to Mass and you never judged me. And now I go to Mass every day. You never know. Uh, just a subtle thing. Somebody might say, I didn't know that. I didn't know it. And it came up, say, at a, the best places in parishes at parent meetings. When, when people come for first sacraments, you know, baptism of their children is a prime opportunity just to talk about why, what does this mean to you? And why are you bringing your child for baptism? And just, you know, and because you, you might know that half of them sitting in front of you never stepped foot in a church, but it's an opportunity to, to give them a nice experience and to think about why, they, why they're there, why perhaps maybe they should be coming to church. You know, you never know, you never know. But for our purposes here in this class, I want you to know the ideals and what is the right thing, both according to what the document says, but also pastorally. How do we deal with this on a pastoral level? You know, because the worst thing I think to do is to totally turn somebody off that they walk away. We don't want that. We want to transform hearts. We want to touch hearts in whatever way that we can. All right, does that make sense? Well, Doctor, as you know, I want to ask yes. you a quick question about sure. uh, distribution of communion um, yeah. on, the, on the mouth after intinction. I was reading that on number 287 that it says that you can um, you can get the, uh, the body of Christ and you could uh, dip it in the blood and then you could distribute it to people. Is that yeah. allowed? Like, is that, that allowed like, um, in, the, in the U.S. or in France? It, it depends on the diocese. In the diocese of Rockville Center, to the best of my knowledge, it still is that you can't do it. Oh, okay. Okay? So it depends on the diocese. What about over there where, where you are, like in New York City? In New York, we don't do it in New York, do we? The priests are doing it with the pandemic. Instead of drinking from the cup, they're doing it by intention, but uh, not to the assembly. Okay. So it would depend. I mean, it is one way to distribute, but um, again, it goes by diocesan guidelines. 
Okay, that's a, that's a good observation. Thank you. I've seen the deacons do it when they don't want to take the cup after the, after the precursors. Right, yeah, blood, yeah, right, yeah. And particularly during this time. Yes. That, yeah, deacons as well. Yeah, good. All right, so we're gonna move on. We're gonna, this, I, let me tell you here. Uh, yeah, this is what I hope to do tonight. And, and we can do this because we're not gonna go into depth on any of these things, all right? Um, I wanna introduce you to two documents, post-conciliar, you don't have to read them. All I want you to know is they exist and a little bit about what they say because I want you to, as, as graduate students of theology, future priests, future deacons, future lay ministers, whatever the case may be, I want you to just be aware because this is where we go for answers to questions. We go to documents, right? Um, so we, I wanna look at Built of Living Stones, Art, Architecture and Worship, and then Sing to the Lord, Music and Divine Worship. And then after the, I hope to do that before we take the break, we'll see. But, and then the right of Christian initiation of adults, that's a whole course, but I just want to introduce you to it. I want to get, I'll ask when the time comes a sense of people's familiarity. I know those of you who I have in the pastoral ministry course, we did a little bit on it. Uh, Robert, you'll be blessed to get a whole course in it next semester. Um, but um, but you need to know um, what it is and what it's not. And that's what I just hope to, and then talk about its revision. So that's the plan for tonight. And I think, I think we could do it. All right, I think it can happen. And again, I don't want you to worry about any of this. This is just information. You don't have to know it for the exam. <laughs> you know, this is just like a gift that you know that these, it's important for me, when I was in your shoes as an MA student, knowing resources was the most important thing. You know, uh, knowing where to go for information. And this is what I'm trying to give you here. So the first one, uh, Built of Living Stones, uh, art, architecture, and worship. This is from 2000. That's when this document came out. And um, the subtitle of this document is Guidelines of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And that whole, I, the whole, I bring this to your attention because it says guidelines. And that tells you the nature of the document, pretty much meaning that it's not like the Constitution on the sacred liturgy, which is binding. This is the principles, the law of liturgy. This is guidelines, all right? It's a place to go um, if you're building a church or renovating a church, that there's things in this document that you would need to be aware of. And I'm gonna point out some things as well. Because I think, again, a whole course could be taught on this, believe me, and there are volumes of books written on it. Um, but this is, again, to whet your appetite. But um, this document builds on and replaces the 1978 document, Environment and Art and Catholic Worship, which was a resource for parishes building or renovating. And the important thing here is that that document in 1978 and Built of Living Stones 
echo what the constitution of the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, says. And that's the important thing, to see how these other documents post-conciliar come out of the conciliar documents. But they look at it more broadly, okay? So that's important to know. So what do we find in Built and Living Stones? I basically just put here what you find in the chapters, all right? And by the way, the document, I looked to see if it's not available in PDF, so I couldn't even upload it for you. But it's available, just so you know, resources. You could just buy it, Built and Living Stones, here it is, single copy, or it's in the liturgy documents that I introduced to you in the beginning of class. It's in that, all right? So it depends how enthusiastic or ambitious you are. But you can always buy documents like this, or you can buy four volumes and have them all, all right? It's up to you. I have both. Okay. So I think that, I always think a table of contents tells you a lot. So here we have the Living Church. Right there, the title of that chapter says a lot. You know, we're not a dead church, we're a living church. It's about people, it's about us. So it takes you through that explanation. Chapter two, the church building, all right, and the sacred rites celebrated there. So you see how it's not just talking about a building and how you build it or how you renovate it. It also, when you're doing that, you have to understand what's going to happen in that building, right? So it's really integrating, you know, brick and mortar with, well, what do we do there? All right? Then the work of our hands, art and artists assisting the church, right? Art, as we know, is so important. Remember that whole thing we talked about, about engaging your imagination? We need good, I had a student last year who wrote a whole thesis on art in Roman Catholic life, and he used the Caravaggio's The Calling of Matthew as his whole, to look at that one painting and then talk about how important the art is in the church. So that's what that chapter is about. And then chapter four, building a church, practical considerations, okay? So then what I did, I gave you some sample topics, and I just went through and pulled some out. And the whole, in chapter one, where it's talking about the living church, I love the way it talks about God's building. You know, you know, with little kids, you would always say, we're going to God's house. I don't know. I did that. This is God's house, you know? And I think that's a beautiful image as well. The church building, the church building, okay? The third bullet point, worship in time and space. Remember, we spend one night talking about a sacred time, you know? So now it's making the connection of that sacred time with the space that we are creating to spend that sacred time in. So we don't take this lightly. It's important. And then Christ's presence in the church. Remember, we spend one night talking about a sacred time, 
how do we um, communicate through the art and environment that Christ is present here? That's important, okay? And we'll, we'll go into this a little deeper, but not too much. And then it um, talks about liturgical principles for building or renovating a church. So for, let's say if your church was undertaking a project of renovation, okay? There, a lot of education has to happen. And I lived through this in the first parish I worked in um, on Long Island, that we would, a major renovation, prepare the parish for years with experts in the field of art and environment and Catholic worship coming in and giving workshops, you know, for the whole parish. A lot of education that went into it, that it was a whole renewal for the parish. That I'll never forget the moment that we had the mass, because while the church was being renovated and closed, we were having mass in the parish center, which is like an auditorium. And so that was like months and months and months. And then we had a week night mass where the church was going to be opened for the first time. Nobody but the pastor even saw it when it was finished. And we started the mass. And this, remember, is after a lot of education, all right, about this. Um, education and renewal of a parish. We started mass in the parish center and then we processed over to the church up the stairs into the uh, main entrance and i will never forget as long as i live and this had to be like 1984 that's a long time ago when the door of the church opened i remember my reaction was because oh, it was so amazingly beautiful you see but it wasn't just about that moment. It was about so many things that happened before. So it was a whole renewal. But my point of that is before a renovation or even a building of the church is done, you have to know the liturgical principles because you have to know how it should be uh, built, how it should be arranged, etc. This is what this document talks about, all right? really important it's not just like a random thing in other words well that'll look nice you know it's it's based how we renovate or build a church is based on the liturgical principles of the church so then again some sample topics in chapter two how about this in a, in a chat in a document on art and environment we're going to talk about the eucharist this that's going to be celebrated there right and this is going to bring you back to our earlier classes, I think. Uh, the building, the place for the liturgical assembly. Remember that from the early centuries? How important the liturgical assembly was, right? So the building itself is the place for the liturgical assembly gathered as one body of Christ. That, that's a profound statement right there. It talks about the congregations area, and it talks about the uh, sanctuary area. It has a whole section on the altar, and not too many people know this, but the altar, to quote number 56 in this document, says the altar is Christ. Not 
many people know that. Because in the beginning of after the Second Vatican Council, when they were moving tabernacles to chapels, people did not understand that the center, and I'm all for tabernacles, believe me, but people didn't understand that in, that the altar is the center, the focus in the worship space. Because as the document says, the altar is Christ. The altar is the symbol of Christ in our midst. And again, go back to the first century, second century, when people were very in small homes gathered around a table. For them, they were gathered around Christ. So I'm talking about now in the worship space, the focus is the altar, okay? And that doesn't discount uh, the tabernacle at all. Um, not one bit, not one bit, all right? But the altar is, is central. Then it talks about, yes. What is, what is the justification in some churches that it's seen recently where the, the tabernacle is somewhere else it, it's off to the side or you know yeah that's in the document as well that's called um like a eucharistic chapel area um that the tabernacle could be a focus like take saint patrick's cathedral you have to go like around and right um there's another there are several churches that were built after the second vatican council that have eucharistic chapels that are not in the main section but there's been a movement now because people don't understand this to move tabernacles back to you know but it should not distract from the altar as well it, and it, every church i go to right now has moved it back i don't have a problem with it but i think the issue is, is that people don't understand the value of the altar Dr. yes i have a question yeah. when you when you are bowing you're bowing to the altar, mm -hmm. right? You're not yes. bowing to the tabernacle. No. But when you but when you go behind the altar, people like when they're going like the sacristan is going to go fix something, and he goes behind the altar, he's looking at the tabernacle and the cross, and he bows. Uh, we, like technically, you genuflect in front of the tabernacle. You bow a profound bow. In front of the altar. Okay, so if you go in front of the tabernacle, your your profound bow to the tabernacle, no. not to the altar. No, no, no. You genuflect to the uh, Jesus tabernacle. Yes. Yeah. But in our in our parish, the, the the altar's in the front. Right. And it has space for you to walk in front of it. It also has space for you to walk behind it. So if you're like, let's say I'm doing a, a you know an afternoon mass. Right. And I'm being the altar server. Yeah. And I'm now on the other side of the altar. Yeah. And I'm passing behind the priest. Yeah. Am right. I? What am I supposed to do at that point? I have the time. You're not going to. You're not going to genuflect because the focus is on the altar. Okay. So focus do I bow to the, the altar? altar? Okay. Focus is on the altar. But if nothing's happening at, at mass and I'm walking past in that backside, I should be genuflecting to the tabernacle. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, right. The general rule. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. can I just ask another question? I, I was under the impression that during Mass um, that you weren't to genuflect, you were to bow. So if what she's saying is is walking behind the altar and you're in front of the tabernacle, yeah. it's a bow, not a genuflect, because That's Mass exactly is actually going I on. Said. Okay. Yes, because the focus during Mass is on the altar. 
Got it. Okay. I read somewhere last year that every Catholic church, when the architect lays out to design a church, the first focus is the altar, and the church is built around the altar because that's the main. That's that's without the altar. The, yeah, the altar is the focus of the worship space. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And so there's a section in this document on that and what kind of material it should be, etc. So, you know, it's it's all there. All right? This is this is good. This is really good. And then the the AMBO talks about the AMBO. Remember, I think it was, I forget, last week maybe we talked about that we call it an AMBO, not a pulpit. And what, who remembers what an AMBO, what it means, the word? Anybody remember AMBO? Table of the word. Table of the word. You know, scripture became very important after the Second Vatican Council. It wasn't that important to us, you know? Um, so the place where we're proclaiming the word from becomes important. And again, there's a section on what an ambo should look like. It shouldn't be like that. You know what I mean? It's It should be more substantial and distinctly different from, let's say, a lectern where the cantor leads the singing from or announcements are made from. It should be distinctly different. It should be beautiful. But it doesn't overpower the altar. So you have the table of the Eucharist and the table of the word. But and get used to the language and use it. Ambo, this is the, what the word of the general instruction, the documents um, that it's called, okay? And then it talks about the chair for the priest's celebrant as well, all right? So again, I just am trying to introduce to you, maybe whet your appetite that you want to look at this document. I mean, I think that it's very um, uh, formative, um, as you'll see in a few minutes. Um, uh, continuing with some topics, it talks about the baptistry. You know, where should the baptismal fund go? Well, it go. It, it takes you through a theology of baptism. Baptism welcomes us into the church, right? When we, the renovation that I talked about uh, in this church that I worked in, they moved the baptismal font. It was the original from the church. It's the second oldest church in the Diocese of Rockville Center, second oldest parish. So they had the original baptismal font that had been moved up near the, in the sack birthday. They moved it to the center aisle toward the main entrance. Notice I'm not calling it the back door. It's the main entrance that's this difference there. So Welcome into the church. when you walked in, it was right there. To think of a funeral. When they would bring the body in and the priest would bless the body, it was from that baptismal font. That was so profound that they could do that. Now the church, that was years ago. It's been recently renovated, and I think they moved it in a different spot, which really disappointed me, but whatever. But you see... If you look at a theology of baptism, it helps you to understand, well, where should it be? There's another church, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, out on Long Island, 
that was um, renovated at one point, but it's a new church built, I think, right before the Second Vatican Council. But they have it situated that the people, for the people, there's one way in, but there's several exits. And they have a baptismal pool that when you walk in that main entrance, it smacks you in the face. It's right there that you can't avoid it. And that's the holy water fountain, basically. It's not just a little thing at the door. You are putting your hand week after week in that baptismal font, reminding you of your baptism that brought you into the church. Very profound. They, they knew what they were doing in that renovation. They understood baptism. So there's a whole section on here. And then it, again, uh, it talks about reservation of the Eucharist. A location of the tabernacle. There's there's a whole section in here. Uh, then the chapel of reservation, which uh, when Rob asked the question, a lot of churches have that, uh, and that's where the tabernacle is. Um, and then versus the tabernacle and the sanctuary, which is also appropriate. But how should it be placed? Okay. Then interestingly enough, there's a whole section about Holy Week in the Triduum. You know, these are our highest holy days that need to be celebrated in this space. So what do we need to take into consideration? So they bring up the altar of resposition for Holy Thursday. You know, where are you going to take it from the main space? Do you have a place to go, right? And sometimes it is just over there. Sometimes it's very profoundly if it's in a whole other space, but it talks about that. And it goes into the other actions, veneration of the cross um, and the blessing of the fire at the Easter vigil. Okay, so I'm, again, I'm wetting your appetite uh, not to spend too much time on this. But again, just getting the whole idea of liturgical theology connected to architecture. Okay, so if somebody is an architecture an architect for church buildings, they need to know some theology, liturgical theology, all right? Or, or it's going to be not good. <laughs> uh, just some names. Uh, Narthax is a place of welcome, a threshold space between the congregation space and the outside environment, okay? So it's when you walk in the door, is there a, a gathering space before you get into the main church? Yeah, neighbors, which is on the next page. You know, uh, churches that have that, this church that has the baptismal font has a whole big gathering space, which is probably as big as this room before you even, you walk in the door, you're in a room like this to gather, chit chat and everything, then when you walk in the church building, quiet. So they were really understanding and thinking. And then I put here this line, and it's from paragraph 95. In the early church, this was a waiting space for catechumens and penitents. Remember when we talked about the catechumens and the, the penitents coming back, either coming into the church or coming back. So again, there's a lot of history. And that's why we spent those weeks going through the history because I think knowing the history of the early church, Vatican II makes a lot of sense, right? And of course, you know, that sanctuary is the space 
where the altar and the ambos stand and where the priest, deacon, and other ministers exercise their offices. And then on the next, I have the nave, uh, which is quoting from paragraph 51, is the space within the church building for the faithful, right? It's the biggest space because it accommodates processions, singing, movement during rites, weddings, funeral liturgies, and personal devotion. And this is important, the next line here. This area is not comparable to the audience's space in a theater or a public arena, because in the liturgical assembly, there is no audience. That is so important to know. The entire congregation acts. And I'm gonna give you an example of what I mean by that, all right? Holy Thursday, Mass of the Lord's Supper, right? We have the washing of the feet ritual, and we have a select amount of people who are invited, chosen, and go up and have their feet washed. None of us, if we're not getting our feet washed, we're not there to watch them get their feet washed. Again, we have to use our imaginations. We are all getting our feet washed. That's what that means. Another example, uh, two, three, four people are chosen for the procession of the gifts. I know with the pandemic, we don't always have it. Some churches are putting it back. But, but we all have to imagine we're all offering those gifts, bringing them forward, even though I may not physically be doing it. So the point here is nobody is a spectator. There's no audience, all right? To me, that's just such a profound line that we, we, we have to know that. You know, some people say, well, I want to be involved in the liturgy, so I'm going to be an altar server, or I'm going to be, I want to be a reader or an extraordinary minister. Well, if you're none of those things, you're involved in the liturgy. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And people need to know that. They need to know that. It's so important. All right. Um, <laughs> Yes. What is the, the, the teaching on the use of churches as concert venues? I'm thinking of this when you mentioned the, that there's no audience, we're all participating. The concert certainly most people okay, on whether, so, that, whether or not that's visible. Yeah, um, you know, there's always a debate whether we should have concerts in church, but we do, and it's part of our tradition, you know, from the beginning. Not for, well, not from the very beginning, but for uh, much of our tradition. Uh, but I think that it's a different, you know, um, I think that's different where there, in some way, perhaps it is an audience. However, let me take it a step further. If it's a, if it would be sacred music, if it's in a church, it wouldn't be secular. So. Am I participating in pray, not, you know, sacraments, but am I participating in prayer in some way? I would have to say yes in my experience. So in that sense, am I an audience member? No. I'm part. It's like if you think about if you go to the theater, take it another, use your imagination. In the theater, you can get so involved in the, the story of what's going on, that are you really just in the audience? You see what I mean? 
you know? I'm thinking of somebody that I was on their dissertation committee uh, for uh, a religiously orientated dissertation, and she wrote on the play Wicked. And when she first told me that and asked me to be on the committee, I said, well, I think this is kind of far-fetched. And then she took me to see Wicked, and I said, okay, I get it. <laughs> I get it. How this musical drama had so many religious implications in it that when I was there, you know, you're really not just an audience member. You are participating to a certain, that's a great question. But we really, you remember I said faith needs imagination? And the, the deep, and imagination is not fantasy. We have to have these images. Or we could never imagine Jesus dying on the cross or walking Calvary if we can't imagine walking with him, dying with him, rising with him. You know, so in all of these cases, it's the same thing. It's the same idea that we really have to take it to a very deep level, a very deep level, you know? Um, there was just, just as an aside related to, and maybe Aldemar, you saw it, there was a documentary on PBS a couple of weeks ago, Old St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, there was an oratorio that was performed there when it was first newly, you know, a long time ago. I forget the composer, because I'm not a musician, but um, anyway, uh, the organist there who my husband knows, and they did a lot of research, they got the music, this oratorio from Italy, and these performers from Italy came over, and they duplicated what was done a hundred years ago or more. Um, and it was like quite incredible, quite spiritual and an amazing thing. Um, so I think it's in our tradition, but I, you know, as I'm talking it out, I would say, no, there's no audience. We're participated. And if you take it to the theater and you really deeply think about what theater does, life, particularly live theater, how we, we become part of it. Does that make sense? I hope so. <laughs> it does, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Good. Um, so two principles guide architectural decisions. Number one, the community worships as a single body united in faith. All right? And we know that. That's pure theology. We are the body of Christ. It's not simply as individuals who happen to find themselves in one place. And the nature of the liturgy demands that the congregation, as well as the priest celebrant ministers, be able to exercise their roles in full and active ways. So when we are gathered, right, we have to remember we're not 900 individuals or whatever amount of people your church holds. We are gathered as one, right? So, and then the second principle, the priest celebrate ministers together with the congregation form the liturgical assembly. So in other words, we're one. We're not this, it's not separated. Okay? When the church is gathered for worship. So, the building of living stones tells us this. I think, this is, this is me speaking kind of now, all right? Church, the church building nourishes the faithful through
design, beauty, color, seating arrangements, furnishings, investor, right? It nourishes us when we walk into a space, something happens. Like when I walked into that newly renovated church and I went, it spoke to me of the sacred, right? So it's nourishing us through all these things. So therefore the character of the worship environment is or should be formative, right? This is why we care so much and we have a whole document about what it all should look like. The worship environment affirms and supports holy actions, evokes images of hospitality, and creates a sense of who we are as the baptized, right? This is why we need to care. It's like stewardship is caring about. Look at this seminary building. I know some of you have never been here, uh, but the care, the stewardship of the people that care for this building, who clean it, who repair it. So it's here for 125 years. That'll be here for another 125 years. And that's the way we need to care for our worship spaces, that they will be there. Um, I joined a parish that I support with my stewardship because it's the parish where my son and daughter-in-law bring their two children and I want that church to be there for them. You see? That's stewardship. Okay? And that's important. But anyway, the, the worship environment can teach us so many things. It reiterates that full active participation of the assembly is to be considered when building or renovating a church, right? Environment speaks of the sacred and helps communicate an experience of reverence, wonder, and awe, as did the church that I walked into way back in 1983 or four. The house of prayer, I just love that expression, where the community gathers to pray, hear the word proclaimed, and celebrate sacrament expresses God's presence among us. All right? Those are just my, that's my commentary, those two slides, that what I get from this. But here, this is going back to the document, number 16, just as the term church refers to the living temple, God's people, us. Remember, I spent a lot of time talking about that, how we are the church, right? Um, the people of God, the term church also has been used to describe the building in which the Christian community gathers to hear the word of God, etc. So then further down, that building is both the house of God on earth, the Domus Dei, and a house fit for the prayers of the saints, Domus Ecclesia. Such a house of prayer must be expressive of the presence of God and suited for the celebration of the sacrifice of Christ, as well as reflective of the community that celebrates there. So you see that in this document, there is a lot of rich uh, theology as well. So then on this um, last uh, section of this, uh, paragraph 17, church, this is important. Churches are never simply spaces but signify and make visible the church 
living in a particular space, all right? So it, it speaks to us about who we are as the baptized. So it's just not a random space, right? It's the dwelling place of God among us now. As such, the building itself becomes a sign of the pilgrim church on earth and reflects the church dwelling in heaven. And you know, we talked about that on and off, how this is very reflective of, of the heavenly um, liturgy as well. Okay, so what I did here for you, let's see how they came out. All right, not too bad. Uh, I just put up, and I tried to include all our dioceses. <laughs> I don't know if I missed any. But we have um, Seminary of the Immaculate Conception in Huntington. I think that's the co-cathedral, right, Bill? St. Joseph's co-cathedral there? Yes, have, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. So we have Brooklyn, right? Uh, there we have our own St. Joseph's uh, Chapel here at the seminary. And then this is one of my favorite. This is a close-up of the... Of in the seminary, the Immaculate Conception, that's the Reridas in the back. The, that, to me, is a very powerful image of Jesus on the cross. So that close-up. Uh, here on the left, uh, I guess your left, um, that's um, a little church in Glen Cove, St. Rocco's, uh, built as an Italian national church. It's got a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> But it's, it's quite quaint and beautiful, decorated for Christmas. And then we have the Vatican, all right, St. Peter's. So I, you know, just trying to show you some different things. St. Patrick's Cathedral. And now somebody, I think, uh, Vince, is that yours in Bridgeport? Yes, it is. Okay. St. Augustine Cathedral. Yeah, okay. Remember the last class yes. I, didn't, I left it out? <laughs> I made sure I got it in. <laughs> uh, and then, let's see. Um, I think, Thomas, is this an opening? I think so, right? Yes, it is. Okay, I did it. And then we have St. Agnes in Rockville Center, <laughs> the cathedral, which was uh, renovated right when I left there in 2012. It was recently uh, renovated um, to, uh, it used to have, I don't know if you can see, but it has a new altar. The tabernacle was in a Christic chapel on the side. They moved it to the center and built what's called a baldacchino over it. Um, and then that whole area, but that was recently renovated as well. And then this, I have no idea where this is, but I wanted to uh, show something that is very simple, yet powerful and prayerful. Um, but um, anyway, I just thought it would be fun to look at some pictures. All right. So how are you all doing? You doing okay? Um, Can we wait for a break? A few more minutes? All right. Because I think I can, this this part, I'm not going to go that into such depth. Sing to the Lord. I just, I want you to just get some key 
um, key principles from it. All right. Uh, this is a document that obviously is uh, written for uh, musicians, pastoral musicians. However, I maintain that you don't have to be a musician to get uh, the full impact of the document. Um, so just some background, there were two earlier documents. Um, Sing to the Lord is 2007. Uh, music and Catholic Worship uh, first came out in 1972. And I remember going to, I think I told you once, I went to probably 50 workshops. I was newly married at the time, and my husband was on the music commission in Brooklyn and had to give workshops. And you know, when you, those of you who are married, you're newly married, you do everything together. So I went to all these workshops on music and Catholic worship, <laughs> you know? So I knew a lot about it. <laughs> but anyway, 1972, slightly revised in 83, slightly. And then the interesting thing is there's a document called Liturgical Music Today from 1982. Uh, and I actually found it. I had it at home in the older volumes of the liturgy documents. But this wasn't meant to, uh, to exist on its own. It was a companion to music and Catholic worship. And they created this companion to be used alongside of it because there were so many on um, uh, developments in the liturgy after those the first years of the Second Vatican Council. So now Sing to the Lord is a revision now of music and Catholic worship. And I think the interesting thing here that struck me as I was researching this, it struck me that you have music and Catholic worship, right, the first document, and now we have music and divine worship. See, it, to me, it speaks volumes. It, it's just like broader to me. But anyway, just in a nutshell, this is designed to provide direction to those preparing for the celebration of the sacred liturgy according to the current liturgical books in the ordinary form, not the extraordinary form. That's our next class when we talk about that. But this is, this is meant for the ordinary form. So very interestingly and quickly, the contents. If you look at the table of contents, why we sing, right? The church of prayer. Singing is praying. Singing is praying. Uh, the music of Catholic worship, preparing music for Catholic worship the musical structure of Catholic worship. So those, those are the titles of the contents that you find in this document. And it incorporates directives from the general instruction and other ritual books. But something to keep in mind, and I'll bring it up on a further slide, it's not this general instruction, it's the one before it. They, this one is revised with Roman Missal third edition so this document from 2007 is not reflective of this, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. But it still has, it still works for general liturgical principles, all right? Um, 
It has insights from scripture, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and Vatican statements. So again, it's talking about pastoral music, but it is reflective of, of liturgical theology, okay? It provides an overview of the integral role of music in the liturgy. This is important because technically we sing the liturgy. Music is just not window dressing. It's, it's meant to be there. We're, we're meant to sing the liturgy, okay? And I love this. This is from right up front, paragraph two. It's just a beautiful sentiment. A cry from deep within our being. Music is a way for God to leap to the realm of higher things. As St. Augustine says, singing is for the one who loves. Music is therefore a sign of God's love for us and our love for him. By its very nature, song has both an individual and communal dimension. You have to remember the purpose of one of the purposes of singing is that it forms us into one choir, one body. That's important. That's why we sing an entrance chant or an entrance hymn. It forms us, it creates that we're not 900 individuals, we're one voice in song, right? Thus, it is no wonder that singing together in church expresses so well the sacramental presence of God to his people, right? I had an interesting, um, when I worked in a parish years and years ago, uh, and we were doing the rites of initiation, I remember once I said to uh, the pastor when we were preparing, there are very powerful prayers in one particular ritual. And I said, you know, Father John, do you think maybe you could chant these or sing them? And he said, no. I said, okay, I just thought I'd throw it out there. Well, when we got to the actual day, Sunday, and he was the um, pre-celebrant for it, he actually did, very simply, chanted these prayers that are part of the rites of initiation. And so he surprised me that he did it. Didn't have the greatest singing voice, but he simply chanted them. And afterwards, that day when I saw him, he said to me, I never realized how powerful those prayers are. You see, by singing them, it made a difference. And, and you know yourself, if you say glory to God in the highest, it's different than if you sing it. That's what this gets at here. It's the same for the exalted. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Anything. I, yeah. was, I was terrified the first time I had to do that. But afterwards, it just sort of takes over. Ab yes. Yes. No. Could you imagine if that wasn't sung? Yeah, I've actually heard it read instead of sung. And... Uh, as long as you can read the music and you can chant it. Yeah, it's not the same. It's like I used the example last week of happy birthday. Yeah. You know, if you said happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, it's almost ridiculous, right? And you're not singing it. It's so powerful when you're singing it with all the candles lit. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or dark. Singing is important. So here you go on the next slide. Singing is one of the primary ways that the assembly of the faithful participates actively in the liturgy. It's right there, right? The people are encouraged to take part by means of 
at, this is important, by means of acclamations, responses, psalms, and antiphons, and then it says, and hymns. Sometimes, I put this in here because sometimes preparing a liturgy, people say, well, what hymns are we gonna sing? The, the hymns are the least important part to sing. Aldemar, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I know enough about music and the liturgy, having at some point in my life worked in music ministry, the acclamations are the most important thing. If we don't sing any hymns, like we do here, we, we sing the acclamations and we don't always sing hymns. Weekday, you know, but the acclamations are what you look at first. And then you decide if you're going to sing an entrance hymn or an offertory hymn or whatever. But you don't have to, you know. Um, and again, the pandemic uh, did a lot there because there was... In churches, there was no um, presentation of the gifts, so there was just maybe a short musical interlude in some cases, but not an actual hymn. There were no collections, at least in Rockville Center, being taken up, so it, you didn't need that. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Um, but uh, the assembly sings, uh, the musical formation of the assembly must be continually concerned in order to foster full conscious and active participation. In other words, this is a, a, a point of education. People need to understand why we sing. And this is a whole other thing, you know? And sometimes we have assemblies who are not singing assemblies. But that's part of our role of forming people to be a congregation that sings. Um, and here on the next slide, you see the whole assembly is actively involved in the music of the liturgy. You could have the most beautiful choir in the world in your parish, you know? But if you don't have an assembly that sings, it's not successful music ministry. You know, the, the choir, it's not meant to dominate. It's there to help lead people in prayer. But, um, and there's, you know, just on a practical level, there's a decrease in uh, people volunteering for ministries in general, all right, um, in most places. So choirs sometimes are very small. But in some churches that I'm familiar with, the assembly is a singing assembly. That's extraordinary, you know, uh, that's extraordinary. And we need to keep that in mind. And then there's this whole big long sentence here, paragraph 49, about liturgical minister, uh, liturgical musicians are first of all disciples, and only then are they ministers. So this is really laying it out, you know, how they are, um, you know, my husband always hates if his cantor says, oh, you know, I have a gig, you know, at the church down the road, it makes his blood boil. But this is prayer. You're leading people in prayer. Don't ever say, talk about it like that. You know, that um, people who are engaged in music ministry are, first of all, disciples, and they are engaged in prayer, and their job is to help others be engaged in prayer through music. So it's serious stuff. So, you know, this document really lays out, who, you know, what is a pastoral musician, you know? Um, and I think that that is very important uh, to keep in mind. Um, 
the next two, um, yeah, I'm just going to go through this, then we'll, we'll take a break, and then I'll talk about the RCIA. But uh, paragraph 72, and then on the next slide, 74. This really goes back to the question that Paul asked a few weeks ago about Latin, right? In the music, in the, in the acclamations and stuff, remember? But first of all, 72, I'll just summarize, it talks about Gregorian chant, all right? Um, and, and remember, this document is a revision of music in Catholic worship from 1970, what was it, 72? So it, it's showing us here that even though in a lot of our places we moved to contemporary music in the 70s and 80s, the documents never said to throw away our traditional music. It never said that. But here, it, it reiterates for us, uh, Gregorian chant should be given pride of place in liturgical services. Um, and then what I wanted you to really see is the next one that talks about the uh, faithful being able to sing parts of the ordinary of the mass um, in Latin. Um, uh, in many, uh, it, it re it's basically echoing what we talked about in Sacrosanctum Conchulium a couple of weeks ago, um, paragraphs 54 and 116. So in other words, it the document on the liturgy never said that we go entirely into the vernacular, even though in practice, in most places we did that. It never said to do that. So I think, and this goes with the question that was asked, that in the last 15, 20 years, we've seen um, in many parishes that the uh, acclamations in different parts of the mass are being sung in Latin because we're catching up to the documents and what they say. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. And, and you know, that's why documents are so important, and that's why we bring it to your attention that you know this, right? Um, so then to just conclude this section, I wanted to just point out that if you're looking at uh, some of these documents that I just talked about, art and architecture, and sing to the Lord, some of the language is not going to be consistent with the general instruction of the Roman Missal or the Roman Missal because you can see the years they're prior to. So for an example, and you have to be aware of this, because if you're reading, reading Sing to the Lord, and you're going to see different language, you know. Um, so for example, penitential act versus act of penance, universal prayer versus prayer of the faithful. So, uh, and this is just my opinion, that I think eventually some of these documents will be revised to re be reflective of the Roman Missal and the general instruction. But as they stand, these two documents that I chose to introduce you to, um, they're not, they're, they're, they still hold. The principles are still there and they're, they're excellent documents and they're strong theologically and uh, we need to know what they say. All right, sorry that I, want to get it in. So let's take a really a 10 minute break. Come back and quarter up and we have 45 minutes to talk about the RCIA. One of the priests. Just 
So, you know, cleanse us of our sins. I thought it was just me. And I said something to my husband later. Mm-hmm. And I said, when uh, the briefing goes, what is that? I said, oh, I'm going to do this. And then the priest we had, kind of two days later, he, you know, the usual website, cleanse me of my sins. Right. So, but it was interesting that he noticed. Yeah. See, they have to, they don't understand, they have to read it, that they, they don't have a right to change it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you hear it, it's different. It's trance. It does. I know. And on one hand, it's kind of No, no. Yeah. It's like, What about me?
right. That's all right. I'm determined that we're going to um, finish all this. And um, okay. So um, what I want to ask you, uh, I feel obligated in a um, introduction to liturgy course to talk about the right of Christian initiation of adults, uh, as we know is the RCIA, but um, I can't really, it's beyond the scope of this course to really go into detail that is warranted. So let me just ask, uh, first the people on uh, the screen, um, have you at least heard of the RCIA? Yes. Let me see. So if you just give me a thumbs up if you've at least heard of it. Thumbs okay. up. Say everybody's heard of it. That's good. And here, I can assume everybody's heard of it, at least. Okay, great. <laughs> teaching it. Okay, good. Keep that thought. And I know, and I just want to let you all know, Rob has been traveling since 4 a.m. He's got to leave a little early, so when he gets up and walk out, it's not because he doesn't love us, but he has to get a train. Um, okay, so what I want to do here is, um, very briefly, and I should be able to do it by 9.30, okay, unless I go on a tangent, and I'll try not to, um, talk about what the RCIA is and what it is not. And I will tell you right off the bat, right now, I'll talk about the process more, but it is currently under revision. Remember I said since uh, we have the third edition of the Roman Missal, and then after that, all of the rites of the church have to be revised. So marriage has been revised, the order of celebrating matrimony, the order of confirmation, the order of baptism of children. The right of Christian initiation of adults is under revision I have the revised copy here that went to Rome for approval. And I'm going to talk about this process if we have time. And now this week, the bishops of the United States are voting on it in Baltimore. All right? And one of the things about the revision that I've been saying for over 30 years is this. The problem is not with the right of Christian initiation of adults. The problem in our church has been with its implementation. And the bishops say that right in the introduction of this revised copy. All right, so that being said, I want to talk about what it is and more importantly, what it is not. All right, so first of all, it is a restored right of the church. And I have highlighted restored. So we didn't invent it uh, in the early 70s after the Second Vatican Council. And it, the Second Vatican Council actually called for the restoration of the catechumenate. All right? And it, um, we have the first Latin edition in 1972. And if you were to go to the three documents I have listed, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, it's paragraph 64 that calls for the restoration of the what's called the catechumenate. We talked about it when we talked about the early church. 
The decree on the pastoral office of bishops in the church, paragraph 14, calls for the restored right, and the decree on the church's missionary activity, also paragraph 14, calls for this right of the church to be restored. So at the bottom of this slide, I have the decree from 1988 that from September, 1 September 1988, the use of the right of Christian initiation of adults is mandatory in the dioceses of the United States of America. Sadly, some pastors think it's an option and they don't use it. So I want you all to know this is a mandatory right of the church. Notice what I'm saying, a mandatory right R-I-T-E, of the church. Keep that in mind. So what is the RCIA? This uh, resource, The Rights of Christian Initiation, Their Evolution and Interpretation by Maxwell Johnson. He teaches or he taught at Notre Dame. He's a historian, church historian. He says this right, notice that right, R-I-T-E is in italics actually a collection of liturgical rites directs that the Christian initiation of adults is to be carried out in accord within a ritual process involving four distinct periods of time, three uh, primary liturgical steps correlated closely with each period. All right, that's a lot to digest and I'm gonna break it open for you. What do you think is important here that I'm trying to get at? What is the RCAA? Uh, a right. A right. Okay. It's also referred to as the catechumenate. And Paul Turner in the Hallelujah Highway, which I talked to you about earlier on in the class, this is the history of the catechumenate. He says the catechumenate is an apprenticeship life as a Christian. Remember, in the early church, if somebody wanted to become Christian, they went and they lived with the Christians until they learned to be Christian. So we, it's an apprenticeship where you learn from somebody who does that, right? Catechumens turn from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light, from silence to song, and from life outside the community, participation in the body of Christ. Remember when we talked about that narthex, the place where the catechumens waited to come in, okay? So here's an out, a brief outline. I'm sorry that's so small. I don't know why it came out so small. But I'm going to belabor it, particularly because you're familiar with it, but this is an extended period of time. Most rites are prepared and then it happens, right? This rite of the church happens over a period of time, in some cases, several years, all right? And what I've broken down for you is the period of evangelization, and then the next with the arrow is the ritual step acceptance into the order of catechumens. Then there's a period of the catechumenate, right? Then there's a ritual step, election or enrollment of names. Then there's the period of purification and enlightenment. 
Then there's the celebration of the sacraments of initiation, and then the period of post-baptismal catechesis. So if you were to look at this right book that I have right here, that's what you would find in here. Okay? And again, this is just an introduction. Now, most importantly is the next slide, what it is not. Okay? And I don't want to pick on Rob, but when I said, are you familiar with it? He said, of course, I've been teaching it. Right? That's right. Yeah. So this is really good. I love it. So the RCIA, this is what the bishops are saying. The problem has been with the implementation. It is misunderstood. This is why it's a mandatory course now for seminarians. All right, we had a curriculum review and we made sure we put it in. Because every time I, I do national conferences on this, this is my expertise. And I go to a national conference and where they have these like um, forum sessions and all these people who are trained in this would say, but our priests don't understand it. And they'd all look at me like, what am I gonna do about it? <laughs> and now I'm proud that now I'm so happy to say, we have a course, they have to take it. <laughs> But anyway, so the R, this is really important if you get nothing else out of this tonight. The RCIA, and I hate even using the acronym. I, if you notice, I've been saying the right of Christian initiation of adults is not a catechetical program. But look at church bulletins. I do that for fun sometimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's not a program of adult faith formation for Catholics. I've seen that too. It is not a catch-up class for sacramental preparation for children. So for example, in a parish, you have a fourth grader, hasn't received their first communion, oh, put them in the RCIA. No, it's not the right thing, but it's being done. This is the problem, the implementation. And it is not an adult confirmation program. This, this part, this is important, okay? I don't know what any of your experiences are with it, other than most people think it's a catechetical program. I teach RCIA, that makes no sense, but I hear it all the time. You don't teach RCIA. You're a catechist for the catechumenate, perhaps but you don't teach RCIA, okay? This is why I can teach it. Somebody, one of my colleagues, God love me, said, you teach a whole course on that? I said, I barely can do it in 14 weeks. Barely to, can get through it. So the church's vision for this right, remember, it's a restored ritual process that in, from the early church of how we welcome people into the Christian community. So the church has a vision that is seeped in the early church. Number one, that it is the official ritual for the initiation of adults into the church. In other words, it's mandatory and there is no other way to initiate adults and an adult, what's the definition of an adult in the church? Anybody over the age of seven? years old. So this includes children of catechetical age. You'll, that language 
is in the right itself, and it's the first document to use catechetical age. So this is the way we are supposed to initiate people into the church. The wonderful thing about it is that it engages, it's a liturgy, it's a rite, but it engages catechesis. In that period of the catechumenate, the second period on that list a few slides back, that's the period of catechesis. And if we had time, we would talk about what that means in the RCIA, but we don't have time in this course. Robert gets to take it next semester. The rest of you have to come back for the elective when I offer it and learn about it. But it engages catechesis in the way catechesis should be implemented. It aims to lead adults to conversion to Jesus Christ. That's the key, conversion. This is what it's about. It acquaints adults, though, to dogmas, precepts, and a sense of mystery of salvation. It doesn't negate doctrine at all. And I put there, it's paragraph 75, which is the paragraph that takes up about almost two pages in here. But it's the most profound paragraph in here that really gives a full explanation of the meaning of catechesis for the catechumenate. But if you were to look further at all of our catechetical documents in the church, nobody knows this, best kept secret, but they all tell us that the catechumenate is the model for all catechesis. So it's a problem because people don't read documents, so they don't know that, right? And it is meant to be ongoing and year-long. And what I mean by that, if you were to look at a church bulletin, it's an observation, not a judgment, and I've seen it, the RCIA program begins in September. Absolutely not the correct language or appropriate in any way, shape, or form because it has no beginning and has no end, number one. It's ongoing. So let me give you a real-life example from a parish. I know I tell a lot of stories, but they're real. They're real. I had a guy once call my office in July saying, I want to become Catholic. I don't live in your diocese. I live probably an hour away. And I have called every Catholic church near where I live, including the diocese that I live in, and nobody can help me. And they're all telling me I have to wait till September to even come and talk to somebody. He called me because he called the diocese I worked for, and they said to call me. And he called me, and I saw him the next day in July. You see what I'm getting at here? It's not a program that starts in September. It starts when a person calls you up and says, I want to become Catholic. You have a place for them to come and just have a conversation at first. And then you deal with the rest. But you see what I'm, that's what I mean by year-long ongoing. I just wrote a book about this. I'm not here to sell books, but I just wrote a book about it. Actually, it's a second book. 
I have a quick question. Yes, please. Is it about um is it uh, RCIA for like um sixteen year olds and like sixteen year olds are they like qualified for that? If they if they are, I'm gonna do a slide on who is it for. Let's go to the next slide. Great question. Who is the right use for? Number one, part, it's broken up into two parts. And part one is the translation from the original Latin from 1972. For the unbaptized adults, which is anybody over the age of seven. So yes, if you have a 16 year old who's unbaptized, this is what you use to initiate them into the church. You use this ritual process. Yes, for anybody from age seven to 97 or 107 or whatever. Yes. Well, I meant, right? I meant the um, I meant the RCIA. I mean, I meant the RCIA uh, program. No, it's not a program. I mean the RCIA. Uh, uh, RCIA. Right. It's the RCIA. Period. It's the right of Christian initiate. I'm gonna get my. You thought my, you know, my my, uh, my um, heart rate was 116 when I left here last week? Why'd you go up now? I'm not kidding. I, I had Father Ernest hysterical. I said, we talked about the general instruction, and my heart rate was 116. <laughs> I think he's afraid I'm going to have a heart attack in here. But that's my point. It's not the RCIA program. It's the right of Christian initiation of adults, period. Okay? The 16-year-olds are allowed to participate in that? Um... Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are various circumstances. Number one, if that 16-year-old is unbaptized, yes, they come into this process, is a better word, a ritual process that includes catechesis. All right? Now, if you look at part two of this ritual text, Particular circumstances. Children of catechetical age is number one on the list, and that includes anybody from seven on up. Uncatechized adults. And uncatechized means basically that you're baptized and that's it. Nothing else. Okay? And then reception into the full communion of the Catholic Church. That means that somebody is validly baptized in another ecclesial community. And we recognize their baptism and we receive them into the full communion of the Catholic Church. Now, an important thing about these distinctions is, and again, there's not time to do it in a course like this, but when we have the full course, I go into detail that we don't treat the unbaptized and the validly baptized the same. That's an ecumenical issue. Somebody comes to us baptized in the Lutheran church, we don't treat them like we would treat a catechumen who's unbaptized. We recognize their baptism and we respect it. And there are rights to that go with that. And they generally do not need a lengthy period of time like the unbaptized do. Does that make sense? Because this is really an abridged version. And I just want you to be aware and to um, have a really basic understanding of, of what um, this is. That first and foremost, that this is a right 
of the church. And you're going to see it in a minute that it is when the revision comes out. What do you think it's going to be called? The order. Exactly. The order of Christian initiation of adults. And I hope we never hear people called the OCIA program. <laughs> My blood pressure will go sky high. Thanks for pulling the roots today. You can see it's going to be last rites. So there are pastoral implications to this. <clears throat> A renewed encounter with God through liturgy. This is where catechesis and liturgy become married again, like they were in the early church. Remember, we talked about that. Two sides of the same coin. This is the first ritual text that we have that marries liturgy and catechesis and that's why the church tells us in other documents it's the model for everything we should do i'm on a mission before i die that everybody is going to know this i i mean it I, I mean this is i've done most of my writing research on this that there's a deeper appreciation for the faith community because this is not done in private Initiation takes place in the midst of the community. Because we're not, if I'm unbaptized and I want to become Catholic, I am not only converted to Christ, but I'm also converted to this community because I'm going to be baptized into Christ, yes. But remember, when we talked about baptism, through baptism, you cease to live in isolation. You become part of the body of Christ, this community. See, so you get a renewed appreciation for the faith community, what it means. Again, here it is, restores the liturgy catechesis connection, awareness of the feasts and seasons of the liturgical year. Now, the reason for this, why I have this here, if you were to look at paragraph 75, that talks about catechesis in the RCIA. It doesn't mean that you give everybody a catechism of the Catholic Church or a religion textbook. It means that you give them a lectionary and it says catechesis is accommodated to the liturgical year and solidly supported by the word of God. And all of the doctrines that they learn, because there is some learning about our faith, as I said before, comes out of what is proclaimed that week. And my best example to talk about that is to say, when do we teach catechumens about the Trinity? Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is the opportunity to talk about the Trinity. All right, so it gives, you know how I say that no, you know, most Catholics have no idea of the liturgical year. Well, guess what? If you implement this properly, every properly every catechumen is going to understand the liturgical year. All right, because every week, that's what you're going to be talking about. You know, going into Advent, Christmas, ordinary time, etc. It's going to be part of that. It renews an understanding of the church, liturgy, sacraments, sacramental theology, and practice. A lot of people who work in what is properly called initiation ministry, that language, right? Like walk this journey with people and, and they, they're like, I, I wish that I did this. And, and I try 
because I've worked with initiation ministers to say, but you've got it already, but now you can appreciate it better, but you've got it. It's like if you go to a wedding, you know, you're married 50 years and then you go to a wedding of this beautiful young couple and you say, oh, you've got it, but maybe you've got to, you know, renew, restore, whatever, but you've got it. You know, the graces of your wedding day are with you. The graces of our baptism is with us now. And this walking and accompanying a, a person on this journey makes us understand our own baptism, confirmation, etc., better. Right? Makes sense? And this is beautiful. It, and we, you see how I'm coming kind of full circle? It restores the order of the sacraments of initiation. Because if an unbaptized person is being uh, fully initiated, they're baptized, and immediately, five minutes later, they're confirmed, and then they come to the table and receive the Eucharist. So it restores that of what we talked about in the early church. So it restores the order. So unlike a second grader said they go for Holy Communion, they have to go to penance first. If they're unbaptized, they don't have to go to penance. Absolutely not. It's all, it's uh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely not. Because uh, the sacrament of penance is not a sacrament of initiation. So the unbaptized person goes to confession sometime after they're fully initiated. <clears throat> Whenever that might be. And that's why it's an ongoing process. Because you're not going to just dismiss them and graduate them after the Easter vigil. What's that? Absolutely. And then if we were to go in depth, they have their Lenten rituals that strengthen everything that is good in them and takes away anything that is weak in them as well. Yeah. But I, I heard recently, I forget who it was, that Somebody was telling me that, oh, no, well, they, they wanted to get it all in, so they brought the catechumens all together and had them all go to confession and everything. That's inappropriate. It makes no sense. You can't go to confession if you're unbaptized. It's just silly. It was like checking a box. I don't mean to be so... No, but it's... But it's true. It's true. Yeah. So it makes the person... Hmm, the yeah. Yeah. Don't know what yeah. Yeah. I can say it. Yeah, I'll say it. What's that? I just said it for you. That they don't know what they're doing. They, they should take you a class. Well, we'll read a book. Or both. Or both. This actually, this book that I wrote, The Role of the Coordinator of Christian Initiation, is like I use my class notes to write this book. This is for a person, just so you know. They asked me to write this a few years ago for the person that the pastor just says, you're in charge, and they know nothing. So it's like really taking them through, and I, I say, read these two side by side. So it's like a commentary with pastoral implications. But I, but I had to write the book really quickly, and I was in a panic. I said, oh, my class notes. There you have it. Don't tell anybody that, Robert. <laughs> uh, anyway. Let me just, I'm, I'm so proud of myself here. But um, does any of this make sense? Because with everything I've said, I could go another hour, but we can't. 
but I just want you to understand what this is. And now, oops, sorry, we need to plan ahead. As I said, the revised edition is an opportunity, I hope and I pray, to refocus and re-energize people who are engaged in initiation ministry. And that, again, that means we have to look at the language that we're using like our CIA program or a teacher or CIA and stuff, because that doesn't make sense if we really understand what it is. So um, we already looked at, there's the Latin, the original Latin is ordo. So it will be the order of the Christian initiation of adults. Because remember what I talked about last time was uh, we now use a formal translation rather than a dynamic. So that's the first thing. Okay, and it's predicted for use. Uh, this is the most recent uh, seminar that I went to. As I said, it's gone through a process of uh, being revised and this red book, which is actually, it's ridiculous, but it's called a gray book, but it's red, but it's called a green book, uh, is what went to Rome and now the bishops are voting on it, um, which leads me, Rome approved it. Um, but anyway, it's predicted now, because these things don't happen overnight, that'll be for use in 2023. That's the most recent prediction for this. Um, and uh, again, it'll have approval from the USCCB. This is just, I wanted to show you the process. This was approved by the USCCB. This went to Rome. And then they're voting on it this week here for use in the United States. And um, remember last week I told you with translations, it's very important that the English is right because other English, the other countries do their translations from the English, not from the Latin. We do it from the Latin and then other countries translate it into say Spanish or whatever, German. Italian from the English. That's how it works. So we got it. And sometimes it takes more, but I think that this is, it's a little slower than they originally predicted, but 2023 seems like, wow, you know. And from what I understand, it's the paragraph numbers will not change, which I am so glad because I know them almost by heart, some of them, and I was afraid of that. But that's what I heard. But the prayers of the rituals will change for the translation. And in the back of the book, there's what's called um, what is it called? I'm sorry. The national statutes. So in other words, it's what the bishops commentary on specific paragraphs. And it's pretty redundant in some cases or confusing from what I understand, the national statutes have been rewritten. So basically they're probably going to be voting on those national statutes because I don't think they're gonna have an issue with the translation. Um, but other than that, uh, we shouldn't see much change. Um, but I think that's all that I'll say about it but you have a somewhat of an idea of proper understanding language, et cetera. Yes, we're good up on the, in Zoom land. 
what I want to do now is just review quickly the assignments. Because remember, next week, no class. Night before Thanksgiving, you'll be home fixing your turkeys or whatever you're going to do. Or studying for your test. I don't know. <laughs> Writing your book review. I don't know. And where I'm concerned, our class, this class, you, those of you for credit, all right, you have a book review, right? And the assignment originally said was to write a book review on uh, Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy. But I, had, I know I had said verbally that if you wanted to do a book review on a different book, you had to ask me. But nobody's come forward to ask me to review a different book. So I'm assuming you're all okay with The Spirit of the Liturgy. Okay, that's only if you're for credit, deacon candidates and MA students. We're all MA students, but deacon candidates uh, for audit don't have to do the book review. But everybody does the final exam, which is the evaluation of the Eucharistic liturgy. We're good? You know what you're doing. So you have, you have next week free. Then on December 1st, we're gonna come back to class. That'll be our last class, because we caught up. You know, miracle. And we're going to do some pastoral issues of, of the liturgy uh, that I want to specifically look at. And then we're going to look at the two documents, um, uh, Samorum Pontificum, Benedict XVI, allowing the extraordinary form. And now we're gonna look at um, Pope Francis's newest um, um, motu proprio, um, saying it's not a good idea. So there's not, I found a few commentaries, but we're basically gonna be objective. We're gonna look at it and try to come to some sense of what Pope Francis, what Benedict XVI meant and perhaps didn't really happen, what he meant. And Pope Francis is trying to avoid disunity. So we're gonna look at it. And um, I have an article that was in our local Long Island paper that I was able to scan and I'll put it up on the files for you. I'll put the two documents up there for you. And we'll have some, because you need to know about it. We need to try to understand uh, what's going on in our church today. This is a real issue, a real um, potential, problem. potential problem. Yes, Carlos. About the, um, the norms from the Sacrosanct Concilium. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a kind of a big document, but um, can is it um, is it only like the, the, you have to focus only on the parts that says like um, general norms A B C D E only those like that would be enough. You mean for your evaluation? Yeah, like uh, liturgy. Well, you have to. Yeah, but you need to have a sense of the whole document what it's telling you about the principles of liturgy. And then there are specific things. And then the general instruction of the Roman Missal is gonna be more specific of what you need to be looking for. All right, so this assignment is telling me how well you understand how the Eucharistic liturgy should, should be celebrated according to Sacrosanctum Concilium 
and the general instruction. That's what this assignment tells me. All right? Yes. Do you have a page length on that one? Oh, not really. You have an essay in the book, in the thing. And the assignment, it's right in essay. Yeah. You know, I don't want anything to go beyond four pages, please, in either of these. Try. I mean, a page here and there doesn't matter to me, but I don't need, you know, I just be as succinct as possible as you can to get the message across. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't work on, I don't say, oh, you have to have 10 pages. That's, I don't, I just want you to do it, answer it, say it, get the point. Got it. Thank you. No, this is important because I know you're going to have these three weeks because don't forget December 8th, there's no class. So our last class is December 1st. And then you have two weeks to get in your finals, your final exam and the book review you can send to me anytime. But, you know, you don't have to wait. If you get it done, send it to me. That's okay. But I did give you until no later than the 15th of December. All right. If you have any further questions, though, don't wait till just email. Don't wait. I want to avoid extensions, particularly over Christmas. You know, I really do, because it's just not a good idea for any of us, because you all need a break. And speaking of that, let me just say this here. A registration is open for the spring. Go on Populi. I know a couple of you are registered, but many of you are not. Go on Populi. If you have a question about what you should take, contact either me or your advisor, Dean Hamill Cregan, if you're a Huntington student. But again, we want to get everybody registered for the spring before Christmas. So take a look at that as well. That's important. Let's see. I think everybody, nobody, two candidates from Yonkers, nobody is on Zoom, right? Anthony. Oh, Anthony, but you're normally not on Zoom. Okay. I'm on Zoom also. Who's that? Oh, gosh, yes, you're not too. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about the comprehensive exam, but we'll wait till December 1st. Those of you for credit, for deacon candidates, for credit, we need to talk about that because you have to register for it if you want to get the study questions. So we'll talk about it on December 1st. Okay? Audit, no. You just have to pass everything. Okay? Either way, you're going to pass whether you go order or credit. Well, credit, no. Credit, you have to have a 3.0 or you don't get the degree. If you're in for credit, you need to have a 3.0 to be able to sit for the comprehensive exam, and you can't get a degree without the comprehensive exam. Is there a review book or something or not really? It's review questions. You need all your notes and your texts. That's what I want to go over with you. Yeah. And I know if I come in on a Monday night when you're in canon law, I have the other people. I'll figure it out. Okay. But 
It's 9.30 on the dot. I am shocked and, and delighted. We did a lot tonight, and I'm so grateful that you're such an attentive audience. So glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it's now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.